Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. Where do you run to? That's the series that we're in on the book of Psalms. And we're going to run to God now and have a moment of prayer and recognition of the service, our military that have lost their lives in Afghanistan this week, the Afghan citizens that have lost their lives. We live in a broken world, friends. Our mission to connect diverse people who share a common brokenness with Jesus to widen the circle. That's why we have a renaissance of reconciliation. That's why we have this 10-year vision that we want to ignite this renaissance of reconciliation throughout our community, throughout our world. So let's, let's go to God. Let's run to the one who holds us in the palm of his hand. Lord, we don't have words, and so we thank you for the Psalms. We thank you that there are others who've gone before us, but we lift up those that have, whose lives have been lost for their families, for the, the grieving, for the sacrifices, and for what these losses have stirred up in others and as we see what's going on in our world, Lord. Hold them close as people mourn, as people grieve, and help us to be agents of peace, of love, and of grace in this broken world. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In this series, Pastor Chip started us off with Psalm 46, a Zionist psalm surrounding Jerusalem, the city of David. And it just so happens that as Pastor Scott and Pastor Steve and now I have run to the psalms, the psalms we've run to have all been from David. So that's just a fun fact. But because David wrote about half of the 150 psalms. I love what Kathleen Norris says about the psalms. She says, they're like old friends who tell us the truth about ourselves. We've been saying these prayers, these songs that have been used and are used for thousands of years to help us pray when we don't know how to pray, to help us worship, to join with the voices of all the saints who've gone before us. They're such a treasure. And today, I'm going to talk about Psalm 27. Now, when we were bridging the Jonah series, A Big Fish Story, I preached um, that last sermon in that series, and it was, it was kind of a bridge. And I talked about Psalm 130 as a psalm I'd run to when our son Mike was 11. He had grand mal seizures and just you know came up all of a sudden and in those long nights when I didn't know if he was going to have one or not, or if he was going to have another one if he had one, I would turn to Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And it ends, I wait for you like the watchmen wait for the morning. And it sustained me. And, and the, just to catch you up, Mike is now almost 40. What? I was so young when I had him. I was not, I was almost 30. 
but he grew out of it in a couple of years, and so we had, you know, he's on medication, all is well, so thank you, Lord. But there was another psalm that I ended up turning to that I'm going to share about today, Psalm 27. Now, before ministry, my husband Joe and I and our family were at Lakewood United Methodist Church over on the west side, um, and there, the pastor at that time, uh, Bud Cox, had told me about something that happened to him at a church that he was serving in Akron some years before in the late 70s. He was working in a study. The only other person in the building was a secretary. Someone came in that morning and they had a gun. They didn't steal anything, but they shot his secretary. He found her in a pool of blood on the floor and she was dead. And the gunman came after Bud and, and shot him in the hand and, and Bud just ran down to the floor, fell to the floor as if he were dead. And I think that saved his life because the guy left. And Bud told me that he had been working on a message on Psalm 27. And when he lay on that floor, knowing his secretary was dead, waiting until he could call 911, he said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And he clung to those words. And so he shared that gift to me. And it became a psalm that I ran to and run to today. So let's hear these words of Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of the sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. This psalm is nestled in Psalms 23 to 30. They all share some common themes about seeking God, wanting to dwell in the house of the Lord, saying, teach me, Lord, lead me in your ways. Now, an interesting thing that some scholars have said that there's such a stark break in the tone when you get to the end of verse 7 that it goes from this triumphant, Lord is my light and my salvation. I'm not afraid of anybody. And then he goes into this, beseeching of God, this desperate plea, to the point that many commentators over the years have said 
that it has two Psalms. But I disagree. I disagree because why? Because we've seen in the Psalms they express every human emotion. There's nothing that you can feel that is not expressed in the Psalms. From the highest heights to the lowest lows, if you feel like you wish your enemies would, you could dash their kids against the rocks, it's there. I don't recommend it. But, you know, you have these days. Anyway, and if you're at the highest heights of praise, it's there. And so, when I think of this psalm and that, that movement from high confidence and high faith and high trust to beseeching God, begging God to not forsake him or leave him, it's like, yeah. And then he goes back to trust again at the end, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And so I can relate to that. And I think about when I went to that psalm when, when Mike was having his seizures, there was, there was one night in particular that I'm going to share about, but he had been on medicine for six months, and it was a Friday night. He had been doing, he'd been doing well. But he started having that feeling in his foot. It was an aura that he had had before he'd had the grand mal seizures before he was on medicine. And so he was having trouble sleeping. He was super restless. And, and I went back, and I saw in my journal from that time that the words of Psalm 27 just came to me. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? From that residue of knowing this bud story with this psalm, it rose again for me and sustained. And so when I look at this psalm and see the vicissitudes, I understand that. I was confident that things were going to be okay. I was. I could feel the presence of God. I knew that it was going to be all right. And I was scared to death. Our son. At the very same time. That's the life of faith, isn't it? We have great confidence. We're full of doubt and worry. Welcome to humanity. Welcome to humanity. And so what, what David does first is that he helps us see how to deal with our fears. And he does it in a way that can be a little bit surprising because he names his fears. He talks about them. And there's a power in talking about, in naming our fears. It takes away some of the, the hold they have on us. When we say it out loud, you know, nobody has to teach us to be afraid. Nobody has to tell a kid to be afraid of monsters under the bed. Heaven knows I was. I slept with the light on. I'd sneak into my brother's room and sleep on the floor. I still do. And actually, that's not true. Joe can attest. Nobody has to teach us to be afraid. And certainly in these last year and a half, right. and you can go further back than that, there's some stuff to be scared of. There's enemies within and without. There's mass anxiety. There's cultural anxiety, cultural fear. You know, emotions can spread. Emotions can be like a contagion. And fear is spreading. So David names his fears. And it helps to take away some of the power of them. But then he reaches out for God with his other hand. He holds his fears in one hand and reaches out for God with the other. And so we have legitimate things to be afraid of, and so did David. Let's, I pulled out some of them from the verses. The wicked advance against me to devour me, my enemies and my foes, an army besiege me, war break out against me, the day of trouble, 
enemies who surround me, though my father and mother forsake me, my oppressors, my foes, false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. There was a book we used to read to our kids called The Terrible, Very Bad, No Good, Awful Day, or something like that. He's having a bad day. <laughs> He's got a lot to worry about. That's right. And he names it all before God. Jesus. And he faces his fears, and he names the fears, and it can drain the fears, like turning on a light when a child is having a nightmare. The Lord is my light. The Lord is my light. And so he goes, and what he says is, one thing, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He says, one thing, not a bunch of things, not another thing, one thing. And he says he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord. Now, that's not literal. Like, you wouldn't want to live here in the Family Life Center. I don't think you would. If you would, you're weird. Because there's no shower. There's no facilities. So he's not saying he wants to live in the house of the Lord, literally. But he's saying he wants to be in the presence of God. He wants to be with God. And he says, one thing. And he's doing something that's brilliant psychologically. It's amazing. You know, we think we're so, um, Chip, what do you say, chronological arrogance. We think we're, we're all that in a bag of chips, which I think is a weird saying. But anyway, <laughs> we think we're that. We think we know everything. But this is thousands of years ago. And David is practicing something that psychologists today called refocusing. Mm-hmm. They say that you, you need to acknowledge your fears, but then turn your attention to something that you place in high value, something that is important to you, and put your gaze on that. Put your focus on that, and it will help allay your fears. It's kind of counterintuitive, but David knew it. David was doing it back then, and he has something to teach us. And so he doesn't ignore. But I think the one thing also helps with our chronic distractibility. Come on now. Probably some of you are taking out your phones right now, saying, she's kind of boring. Did I get anything on Facebook? (laughs) Am I right? We're addicted to notifications. We're constantly jerking to and fro. Even though every time we're interrupted, it takes us 23 minutes to get back on track. To get back on track. And we're so distractible that we lose focus of the one thing. And we, you know, we're in what's something that's called the attention economy. Now what that means is attention, our attention, is a scarce commodity. Wow. Come on. And so social media companies, advertisers, they're trying to get your attention. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Tristan Harris, who was part of that great documentary, The Social Dilemma, he said, if the product's free, you're the product. Yeah. Wow. The product's free, you're the product. Wow. We are being used, friends. Yeah. We are being distracted. And it's, it's, not, it's not a new thing. In Luke 10, Luke tells a story about Jesus going to dinner at Martha and Mary's house. And Martha's running around like a nutcase. Let's get this ready. Come on, come on. Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now Martha goes to Jesus because she's going to tell on her sister. And she wants to get her in trouble with Jesus. She says, hey man, I'm doing this all by myself. She's not helping me. She's just sitting on the floor. Let's do something about it. And he said, oh, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. 
one thing. Now I can, I can tell you something. I really suck at doing that. Can I say suck? I did. Too late. Uh, the week before last, Joe and I and Mike and his kids, uh, their kids, Mike and Laura's kids, we went to a little Airbnb in western New York, uh, beautiful setting. So what did, what did I do? Laundry, dishes, Miss Busy, when I needed to sit and listen. Enjoy the incredible surroundings and the beauty. Um, I have that achiever strength and it persecutes me. But I have to remember one thing, not many things, to not be distracted and to focus on God. And then he continued, and there, there's, ultimately there's only one thing that matters. In our children's ministry, if you see our volunteers, they're wearing shirts that on the back says, 100 years from now, the only thing, the one thing that's going to matter in the life of a child is their relationship with God. That's an incredibly important ministry affecting generations. And so here, here's the thing. You should volunteer if you have a call to that. I mean, I'm, I'm just bold-faced recruiting. We need folks in there. That's right. Um, we introduced our new pastor of children and families, Kenya. She's doing a marvelous job. And they have fun in there, too. But it's so important. There's only one thing, the most important thing. So um, sign up. All right, amen. amen. Done. But then what, what does David do? He says... I want to gaze at the beauty of the Lord. One thing I ask from the Lord, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Now that seems kind of funny to me. It seems kind of counterintuitive because, you know, we heard about all these enemies. Why doesn't he say, I want to think about God's power and omnipotence and that he's going to get all the bad guys and, you know, be a Terminator or something? I don't know. I'm not good at action movies. Help me, Chip. trying to be culturally relevant but maybe it's because we need beauty we're hardwired to need beauty there was a, a car ad that I saw that said performance that moves you beauty that stops you in your tracks when have you had beauty stop you in your tracks on that little vacation we went to Niagara Falls on the New York side and we saw this now, a picture can never really capture it, but you can see there's a rainbow there, the falls. It was incredible. And it, it kind of it drew me back to God, to look at God's incredible creation. And when we come to beauty, it can draw us to God. It, the, the beauty that we see in this world really is a, a dim representation of the beauty of God. Right. And the be- and the, but the beauty in this world can draw us to God. There was a story about a woman... Mary uh, Rothrock, she was a grad student, she was going through some tough times, she was not a believer in God, but she was just sitting quietly one day and she had heard Handel's Messiah at some point in her life and she, the words came to mind, the glory of the Lord reigneth. And it captured her. And she went and she listened to the Messiah and the beauty and the majesty of that music. And it drew her to God. She was gazing on the beauty of God. She didn't know she was, but she was. And it drew her to God, and she ended up meeting a woman who was a Christian who led her to Christ because of the beauty of God. We need to pay attention to God's beauty. We tend to 
be so caught up in things that we, we don't simply recognize his beauty for what it is. And last week when Pastor Scott was preaching on Psalm 131, that beautiful image of a weaned child leaning up against their mother, not looking for anything, not needing anything, simply being there. Loving God because God is God. And so David is saying, I love God because God is beautiful. I love God because God is God. God is not my one thing because God is useful. That's right. God is my one thing because God is beautiful. Yeah. And it makes such a difference in how we come into that relationship and how we pursue God and let him pursue us. And we also need to, when we gaze, we're looking intently. We're tracking things. We're actively watching. Now, now I know a little bit about this because Joe and I, we have a three-year-old German shepherd named Leah. Now, Leah loves Joe. When he comes home, she goes crazy. And when he's sitting at his desk, she's like watching. And then this is her getting ready to catch a Frisbee. And her eyes are laser focused. She's going to get that Frisbee, and she does. She gets up in the air, she gets it. She's trying out for the Olympics next time. Are we gazing? Are we gazing at God? We have the intensity of that dog. Do we have the intensity of that? And, and what we see is important. What we expose our eyes to, it's, we're responsible for what we eat, but we're also responsible for what we see. That's right. What are we looking at? Are we doom scrolling? Are we looking at news feeds? Are we looking at images of violence? Are we looking at pornography? What are we gazing at? What are we putting in? Because what we see shapes us. Parker Palmer says that our seeing shapes our being. Our seeing shapes our being. When Jesus had been um, out of the boat and the disciples were in a boat and the, um, like, I don't know, like, it was Lake Galilee. What lake was it? Sea of Galilee. I was there. I should know these things. Anyway. But, so Jesus is walking on the water. Peter's in the boat. He says, Lord, invite me to come and walk to you. And so Jesus says, come on. And he starts walking. And he, as long as he's looking on Jesus, he's fine. But what happens when he gets distracted by the wind and the waves and the storm and everything that's going on? He goes, Bleh! He sinks. When we take our eyes off Jesus, when he stopped gazing, then we, we sink. And we lose our way. But David isn't just sitting forever, seeing, seeing the beauty of the Lord, experiencing his presence leads to seeking. And so he says, one thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek. And then down in verse 8, my heart says of you, seek his face, your Lord, your face, Lord, I will seek. And so once he sees the one thing, it ignites a passion to seek God, to turn everything aside so that he can follow God. Once he sees the one thing. And when we seek something, we're actively searching for it. We're desperate for it. And he says that he's putting all of his energy into seeking. Jesus tells a parable about a man who found a treasure in a field. And then he went and he sold everything he had 
So we could dye that field for that one thing. It ignites a desire to seek, a desire to go after God with everything that we have. And so to seek his face is to, the Hebrew root means to turn, it's a personal relationship. It's being intimately connected with God. I've shared that I, for many years, was far from God, gradually came back, uh, started going to the Lakewood United Methodist Church, and uh, my friend Bonnie really taught me about the Holy Spirit, about prayer, about experiencing the presence of God. And as I gradually, you know, kept making my way back towards God, I started seeking him. I couldn't get enough. I, I couldn't read the Bible enough. I couldn't pray enough. I, I was so excited, almost embarrassingly so in some ways. But everything I had, I wanted to seek God and in order to know him and to experience him. And then eventually, I, I ended up feeling a call to ministry. And it was not something I was looking for, believe me. I was a freelance editor. I was doing just fine. I, we had our three kids. Didn't want to work full time. <laughs> Didn't want to go back to graduate school. Didn't want to have anything to do with it. But I began to feel a call to ministry. I was involved in something called Vision 2000. It seems like 2000 was a long time ago, doesn't it? But there was something called Vision 2000. Pastor Chip was a leader in that movement. And it was um, trying to ignite the church for the future and to see what God has for his church. And I was so excited about it. I was just always writing things and um, pestering the pastor all the time. And, and just I just couldn't get enough. And, and eventually, I was sensing there was a call, but I was, was ignoring it. And then... There's something at annual conference when uh, the people in the United Methodist Church are ordained, a, a service, and at the end of that service, they issue an invitation. Now, I had gone this one year because uh, our associate pastor was being ordained that year, and at the end, they gave an invitation. They said, if you're feeling a sense of call to ordain ministry, come forward. So you know what I did? I held on to my chair as hard as I could. There was no way. No way I was going. Only dumb people go to altar calls. That's not true at all. It is not true at all. And uh, Pastor Chip told me this. He was actually the one who instigated having a formal altar call at that service. So would it not be for that? So anyway, I didn't go forward, but I felt convicted, really, of sin more than I ever had in my life. And I've done some stuff. You know I went to Woodstock, right? Yeah. I've done some stuff. But I felt more convicted about this. Why? Because I said, God, you're my one thing. I'll do anything, whatever. But not that. I'm going to hold on to my chair because I'm not up to it. And I, my life is pretty good right now. I really don't, don't want to change everything. But that began the process then where I, I went to my pastor and said, look, I had this experience. I really feel I need to um, go into ministry. And so, so it began. I went off to seminary. And then um, this is actually the only church I've served. I've been here 18 years, believe it or not. I know, it's crazy. 
<laughs> you thank me now. No. And I'm, I'm so grateful for the journey. And this is not to say that ordained ministry is some higher plane than anything else. It's not. God calls all of us. I'm just sharing my story. Now, the, the apostle Paul, who started out as Saul, he was persecuting Christians. Pastor Chip says that Paul killed Christians until he became one. And then he gets stopped in his tracks on the road to Damascus where Jesus takes away his sight. And then changes how he sees. When he opens his eyes, who does he see? Jesus. And he fixes his eyes on Jesus. He gazes on Jesus. And then he can't do anything else but seek him for the rest of his life. Come on. Come on. And he says in Philippians, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on. I seek to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That's very significant. To take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Jesus is taking hold of something for you, but you need to respond. You need to take hold of that. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. One thing, press on. That's what we're called to. The life of faith is a long obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson says. It's not a one and done, and David knew that. And maybe that's why he said, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You know, those words, be strong and take courage, those are the same words that are used in Joshua, by Joshua, when he's exhorting people to enter the promised land. Be strong and take courage. The journey is not easy. Wait upon the Lord. And I think David is talking to himself through this whole psalm. But I hear him talking to me, especially in these times. Wait, take courage, take heart, be encouraged. It's a long journey. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, I said I, I went back to the journal I had kept when, uh, during those days of when Mike was going through the seizures and all that, that Friday night. This is what I wrote. And I was, remember, I was scared to death. Despite my fear, I felt surrounded by God's care and by his word as if the words and the experiences those words represent, the experiences of David, of me, of all the saints who try to lead faithful lives and seek to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, of all those whose stories are told in scripture, created a strong protective net, permeable enough for the experience of the moment to travel through, but able to help us keep safe and from being truly set adrift. The gift of faith says, even though the uncertainties of tonight and the next night and the next remain before us, I'm assured of God's presence and care and protection, and I can say with David, wait for the Lord, be strong, and take heart, and wait for the Lord. You know, David, when he's talking about dwelling in the house of the Lord, talking about tabernacle or the tent, But Jesus is the temple. When he was 
being attacked, asking what's your authority by the religious leaders, he talked to himself in the temple and he said, this temple will rise up in three days. They're like, you're crazy, man. It took 40 years to build that thing. But Jesus goes to the cross for us. He was beaten, disfigured. The one who had been in glory with God humbled himself, even to death on a cross, and lost his beauty so that we could become beautiful. He let go of all that so that we could experience it. And so when we gaze, we set our eyes on the beauty of the Lord. Jesus is not physically beautiful at that time, but what he does for us, the love he has for us, is the most beautiful vision you could ever have. And so my question is, have you sought the beauty? Have you seen the beauty of the Lord? Are you seeking after him? You may say, Terry, I, you know, I kind of like to. I, I don't really know what that's all about. Well, then my invitation to you is do one thing this week. Take Psalm 27 and just read it every day for five days. See what happens. I'd love to know. And if you've seen the beauty of the Lord, you've been seeking him. Why don't you pray about, I invite you to pray about, is there something that God has been inviting you to do, a way to serve, a way to grow, a way to seek, and you've been holding on to your chair like I was. Ask God what that is and see about letting go. In Hebrews, it says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked down for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, gazing on the beauty of the Lord the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, and as Pastor Chip has said so many times, that joy is you. That joy is me. To give up his beauty that we might have it. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Gaze on him. Think about him. Who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and courageous and wait for the Lord. He's our light and salvation. He's the light that the darkness could not overcome. So receive him in Jesus' name. Amen.